0: Welcome to an old, old story. I'm Alan Elrod. It's November, and a year from now, Americans will be going to the polls to either re-elect President Obama or usher in a new administration. It's strange to say it because the Obama administration has been the first one in my lifetime that I've really felt any ownership in. It's the first time I was able to vote, but more importantly, it's the first time that I truly felt I had a candidate, someone I believed in. I think that rings true for most people in my generation. When I was growing up, my father had always made sure not to discuss his political opinions too heavily around me. He never told me who he was voting for. He wanted, he said, for me to become my own person, for my own political beliefs and loyalties. I want to say that I think that's parenting to be lauded, but looking back, the interesting thing is that there was this assumption that I would become an active participant in my democracy. He was keeping his vote from me so as not to tamper with my future vote the one that I, like any good, educated citizen, would surely cast. I don't think this assumption was my dad's alone, or really even that it was his to begin with. But today, I think that my generation especially are called on more than ever to be media critics, to be politically opinionated, informed, saturated almost, in a sense of the political dialectic, the conversation of today. And for Christians, the conversation in these times has mostly been about how much our faith... How much of it should we want to legislate? But it's not really been about whether or not we should want to legislate at all. It's not really about whether we should be voting in the first place. Well, that hasn't really always been the case. Everyone who honors and serves a human government and relies upon it for good more than he does upon the divine government, worships and serves the creature more than he does the creator. From David Lipscomb, the namesake of Lipscomb University and one of the seminal members of the Restoration Movement. And these words speak to the ideologies that were at the heart of the people who started schools like Harding, like Lipscomb. And they ring in contrast to the idea of Christian politicians. Another from Jane Armstrong, the first president of Harding University. We cannot join in the hating, the bitterness, but must keep the spirit of Christ and try to heal the wounds of the world in the love of men. The problems of the world are not ours to solve. Whether our statesmen in putting the nation into war are wise or otherwise, it's not ours to decide. We are sojourners and pilgrims, strangers on our way home. So we Christians are not in the war. It is not our war. We are not on either side. And I think this is the kind of sentiment that's not being echoed as much today. Christians debate, liberal or conservative, the place of our faith in American politics. They then don't debate that it could exist outside. Another quote to bring home this point from James A. Harding, the very namesake of our university. Until Christians learn that Christianity is an institution distinctly separated from all worldly powers, the church cannot fill her God-given mission in the world, nor command the respect due her from mankind. But see, these men, these voices were the people who ushered and led the restoration movement. Like I said, these were the men who founded schools like Harding, schools like Lipscomb, the very society, the very culture that we are raised in, that simultaneously preaches political activism. These things were born out of the minds of men who spoke words like these. And these days, we're pretty sure that they'd be more than a bit confused to sit in on a lecture in the Benson Auditorium. So we figured it was time to turn to some echoes of this primitivist call. We thought it was time to explore just what drives a vehicle, the current vehicle, of Christian politics, liberal or conservative, to venture an argument that maybe, when it comes to giving to Caesar what's Caesar's, the buck stops here.
1: Oh, turn off the TV. It's killing us. We never see. There's a radio in the corner, it's dying to make us see, so give me soft, soft static with a human voice underneath, and we can both get old fashioned, put the brakes in these
0: First up, an interview with contributor Jimmy Shaw and author and theologian Chris Hall. Chris Hall currently lives in Camden, New Jersey, where he is also a carpenter.
2: I thought we might start with just kind of your reflections on uh, the work that that you've done, particularly in in the book that you uh, co-authored with Shane Claiborne. Uh, Jesus Mm -hmm. for President. Talk to me for a second about what your aims for that were, what you felt like y'all were hoping to accomplish, and and what you felt like the important themes were that that came out of the work that y'all engaged in on that book.
3: Yeah, well, Shane and I started grappling with these topics as soon as September 11th happened. It ignited something that had been already present in us, but became ever more strong, realizing that we're surrounded by so many Christians that have taught us so much and that we love dearly. But then when the um rubber hits the road in terms of the violence of retaliation and uh forgiveness and fear of death and fear of terrorism, we found that a lot of the evangelical world that shaped us so much and that we love so much were jumping right onto the war bandwagon. We largely lamented that so many of the people that shaped us kind of were right on board with Afghanistan and Iraq. And it really made us step back and say, how can we re-digest the gospel in a way that it also affects our politics and even the politics regarding violence, realism, and interacting with evil in the world? Right around the time when George's four years was about coming up, um, everybody's attitude was anybody but Bush. You know, you you hear, hear John Kerry saying back then, hey, I'm not a wimp. I'll, I want to make the largest military appropriations in world history. And that makes you kind of want to throw your hands in the air and say, okay, wait. As a Christian, what does it mean to sort of, on the one hand, critique power and imperialism and invasions of foreign countries, but then oppose it with an alternative, which just seems like um, a different color scheme
2: <laughs> right. with,
3: uh, you know, the Democrats and the Republicans. And so that really made us want to start studying alternatives. And it just so happened that at the time, uh, Richard Horsley came out with a book called Jesus and Empire. So we studied that together and we studied John Yoder's The Politics of Jesus and a little bit of N.T. Wright, and putting all that together, it really sounded like it wouldn't be inappropriate to say Jesus is my president from that kind of scholarship, that early Christians, by calling Jesus Lord, were saying that Caesar is not. And so we started hawking that kind of language around, and we we really wanted to inspire Christians to really displace this sort of what what seemed almost unquestioning allegiance to George Bush's leadership in invasion and uh sort of ruffle it up and and uh shake it up with sort of different theological language.
2: Yeah, on one of the early pages of, of the book you you open with a description of the book as a as a project in renewing the imagination of the church and those who would seek to know Jesus. I I like this line. We are seeing more and more that the church has fallen in love with the state and that this love affair is killing the church's Imagination um, yeah. you talk at one point about exploring what you call the political imagination of the Bible, in general terms, describe that political imagination as you as you see it
3: well, if we can span really far back into the deep Jewish narrative, we have the Jewish people as a sort of political alternative to the growing powers of the Middle East at the time. So if you, if you look at the Jewish people in regards to sort of front row observers of the rise of the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Parthian Empire, the Roman Empire, you can start to understand the Jewish people as a sort of case study in alternatives to the big powers. And they're a case study in the sense that They've, they've tried different things. They've, they've tried, um, being like the other powers around them during the Davidic dynasty, which very quickly fell apart after Solomon. They've also not just tried, tried out power on the world's terms, but they've also tried out what it means to be a totally spread out community that has no central power and authority, but somehow manages to maintain a certain coherent lifestyle and some kind of transnational connection. And I guess in part, some of the transnational connection that comes from the Jewish mindset would be huge for Christians to be able to take on today. I mean, if Christians, when we were talking about invading Iraq, said, well, I have brothers and sisters in Iraq, how how different would that rush to war have looked if if Christians had a more transnational identity. So partly a transnational identity is is what we see bubbling under much of the surface in the Jewish-Christian way of of thinking politically. And in, in modern terms, one of the hip, cool, politically correct things for people to do is to always pay attention to the victim's of a situation, and and pay attention to minorities.
2: Largely, that's
3: exactly what Christianity and Judaism invented. Christianity is entirely asking the, the whole world population to associate and turn their minds towards the small minority population enacting a political alternative in the world.
2: Right, but the irony is that we in the church in spite of that tradition of recognizing the value of standing with the victims we've actually come to what to have a deep down sort of trust that that ultimately only the power of the state and its militaries can really can really make a difference in the world and we have to stand back yeah. and wait for those things to happen
3: right right i mean there has been again connecting with this jewish observation of the rise of empires around the world there there is there is a way to stand back and and critique those rises and see the shortcomings and, and the pitfalls of of seeking out power. Um, but power is very enticing and and sometimes power is thrust upon people. Like for the Catholic Church, um when the Roman Empire crumbled there was a power vacuum and and that won't stand for long. And so it became a part of part of the Christian mind to say, well when things are falling apart, you got to step in. And that's not an entirely unreasonable logic. But the challenge is how, how do you engage that power vacuum? You know, there's always a chair to step into, a seat of authority that one could pounce into, whether it be enormous governmental powers or small neighborhood associations. In, in our book, we're trying to emphasize the way in which Jesus looked towards his seats of power. He seems to have not been trying to vie for Herod or Pilate's seat, but instead enacted a more grassroots program of healing, connecting with people, and and reinvigorating a sense of the Jewish identity of the 12 tribes through his 12 disciples and and trusting in God instead of um a reinvigorated Roman empire
2: it seems like christians today feel this kind of need to have an allegiance to america that is sort of not transnational as you were talking about the kind of uniquely devotional kind of commitment what is it that's happening that's pulling us into that kind of uh into that kind of devotion well um
3: it's a religious devotion in the etymological sense of the word. religion is that which binds people together um, and in the situa in situations of conflict and and terror and chaos um, people need to find some way to draw themselves together uh, rene Girard is a a person who has really tried to point out how frequent and how fundamental it is to humans to find a binding culture among themselves and and often what has bound us together has been sacred violence often channeled into religious sacrifice either human or animal sacrifice and and in a way some of what brought us all together after 9-11 in some ways was a camaraderie but there was also very soon thereafter i think a coming together that had much more fear, anxiety, and violence as a part of its uh a part of the glue that brought people together. Um a sort of circling the wagons um anxiety. And out of everything that might look bad, there's some usually good kernel inside of it. And I really do think that the nationalism that has come up among so many Christians that I know what could be really good inside of that is, is if we took it far more seriously in the sense of having a pride for our, our locality of our place. Wendell Berry is a big champion of this idea. It almost sounds like he's trying to get our nation to actually nationalize itself, <laughs> to believe in itself as, as a economic and ecological entity because you know, in this nationalistic fervor or what it seems like nationalistic fervor underneath it is still a pretty profound, disgusting type of internationalism that is prepared to send sweatshops all around the world and factories into Southeast Asia just for a cheap buck you know and to me that's that's a million miles away from a legitimate form of nationalism where people have a pride in their nation of a sense of, hey, we care for what we know and what is around us. If it was that type of nationalism that was rising in our day, I would be almost prone to uh, support
2: it. In Jesus for President, you and Shane spend a long time talking about Caesar and the Lordship of Christ in contrast to the Lordship of Caesar. Uh, When we think about analogs to our own situation how can we see with clearer eyes the nature of empire and the nature of caesar in our own in our own time and context what are what are some of the signs of that
3: well empire largely works i see it very similar to colonialism and in empire colon- colonialism what they do is they take money resources and people from marginal areas, and bring them to a center. That's sort of one of the major motions of of power in, in empire. And so I think we can really visibly see that in our day economically. Wherever we are reaching out into the world to gain wealth, to bring it back to ourselves, um, we have to analyze that, that motion of power, and I mean that economically in the sense of that uh, we have, in, in the last 50 years, sent capital all around the world in the form of factories and sweatshops to bring wealth back to us in the form of excess labor, in the, in the sense that we are having people work for us at a massively cheap price, virtually slave prices. And and it's coming back to us in the form of profit. Now, that's that's kind of fascinating in our day. William Kavanaugh notices this. He's a great theologian. He says, capital in our day can move. Capital in the sense of um, factories and businesses can move in our world. But what is not mobile is labor. You can't have Mexicans just jumping up into the United States. We don't allow that. But we can have factories jumping over the border. Now, what does that mean in our world? It, it really means that if you have money, you win. If you don't, you're a loser. And to me, that that type of injustice is a hallmark of imperialism, and it's something that Christians, by their allegiance to the cross, should have a general antipathy towards. Um, you know, that's that's what the profits railed against. The profits railed against exploiting the poor for the sake of our gain.
2: You make this point, I think, really well when you talk about the power of branding. Um, and I think, about, I think of the, the way that that turn of phrase says something to us who live in a consumeristic, uh, marketing sort of world. You, you say this at one point. Caesar could brand with his image coins, crowns, and robes, which moth would eat and rust would destroy, but life and creation have God's stamp on them. Caesar could have his coins, but life is God's. Caesar had no right to take what is God's. We are also reminded that just as Caesar stamped his image on coins, God's image is stamped on human beings. What are, are, Aren't there ways that we are in danger of allowing ourselves to be branded not with that image of God, but branded with the the empire's identity, branded with the brandings of culture and the brandings of the market. Uh, are, are, are we at Are we at risk in our way of life? Yeah, I mean, certainly.
3: But I guess the more deeper theological question would be: What does it mean to be marked by the quote brand of God? What is the image of God? And Christians are risky enough to lay claim to what they think God's brand is by saying that they think God is love. I mean, it, one might think it's just as reasonable to say God is hate or God is vengeance or God is um, strength or God is a fire-breathing be- dragon. You know what I mean? That they, it, it, The Christian claim to God is love is its a risk. It's a claim that needs to in a way, compete with the other claims of what God is. And so if God is love, the question is, what does it mean to be branded by that kind of love? And in our book, we're also trying to take that a step further by saying, yeah, and let's look at what Jesus' love looks like. It involves um, a type of suffering that has to, instead of destroy its enemies first, has to die to them. I think that's really big when it comes to political dialogue about this stuff, because the George Bushes of our world say, of course we're all made in the image of God. And um, he has no problem seeding that rhetoric. But the question is, how does one bear that image of enemy love in relation to being part of Caesar's world? Right, Um, But we
2: recognize that
3: it's not easy to work out. I mean, I feel like every day that goes on, I become more and more Catholic, and therefore I step more and more into a long, few thousand-year, extensively recorded and detailed history of working out that tension. And the more you look at it, the, the less clear and obvious and easy it is.
2: What are some ways that you see followers of Jesus engaged in productive resistance, notable kinds of resistance to the ways of empire? Well, um, the place
3: where I began seeing some amazing patterns of life were in the Anabaptists and Mennonite communities in Belize and where I ran into types of people who were living out the type of local economy and self-sufficiency of farming and just earning their living by the sweat of their own brow instead of the sweat of somebody else's brow, as is customary today. And by doing that, they became so much more empowered to be, I guess, not afraid in the world. This is something I wrote about in Jesus for President, that the more your house is built on sand, built on exploitation or on cheap fossil fuels or on abusive use of the land through pesticides and fertilizers, the, the more dangerous they are, the more we tend to deviate away from jesus' teachings um, and, and I mean that in the sense that like when when I ran into Mennonites and in Belize who who were prepared to build their own houses and grow their own food and make their own clothing, the way they related to enemies and burglars it was it was entirely foreign to my way of thinking they They didn't have any fear of enemies. And it was because they were living a pattern of life that as a community, a thief could only make a tiny dent. But for some of us, uh, a thief would devastate our lives um, because we're not as communally interconnected, we're not as um, capable, we're we're sort of specialized in our economy. But when I run into these Amish and Mennonite folks who, who are living in a so much more thick Communal way of life. I feel like that is that is something that the rest of the church can really learn from. All denominations can, can get so much out of that Amish Mennonite pattern. So to me, that is a great uh, sign of something happening today. Does that does that seem like a decent example? <laughs> Yeah, I think
2: so, and and you, you know, I mean, some of us obviously know you as a as an author and a person who's you know spent time reflecting on these. But in your own community life, I mean, you work with your hand to uh, do carpentry, and you um, you see this sense of a need of what a self reliance community that that is interdependent on one another. How do we relearn those more primitive? but more lasting kinds of skills that then allow us to live in more peaceable ways with the earth and with our neighbors and with our enemies and with the systems?
3: Well, the short answer is you just have to fail forward. You just have to try to start learning and finding what's around you to, to start learning from. One of the present solutions for many of us could be to learn from people that are older than us And I point that out first because so much of my evangelical upbringing was all hyped towards this sense of newness, the next big thing, the next sort of movement. And it sort of cast off old people as sort of people you have to tolerate and be charitable towards. But I'm under the impression that in our form of economy that some older folks are are part of a, a world that was much more oriented towards thrift more oriented towards um, making do, making do with what you have. And when when Wendell Berry talks about what is going to be necessary for a social transformation these days, it, he says the transformers are going to have to settle with being poor. They're going to have to live with making do with what they have because they they're not just jumping onto – The enormous river of capital acquisition, doing something that they feel is a little bit more um, down to earth, a little bit more, um, you know, according to their calling instead of the call of mammon. I guess in a broad sense, what I'm saying is that the call of God may simply be different than the call of mammon.
0: Normally, at this point in the show, we'd bring you a piece from a third-party contributor, some essay or piece of short fiction related to the topic at hand. But today, we wanted to give particular pause and attention to the Harding context. The issue of Christian politics takes on a particularly interesting form at Harding. This is due to the presence and activity of one particular campus organism, the American Studies Institute. But before we can talk about the ASI, its role and importance, we first have to set the stage with some context, some history. It's the spring of 1936, and Harding University is in its dark days. In financial shambles, the school faces rising costs and an increased enrollment which it can barely support. It's at this time that they turn to a savior. George S. Benson is a former Christian missionary to China and an outspoken proponent of fiscal conservatism and the free market. They make the call. Benson comes. The results are undeniable. To strict cost-cutting and financial management, Benson roused the school out of its quagmire, and in November of 1939, the university's mortgage was ceremonially burned on the lawn. However, Benson's story isn't merely one of raising the school out of the depths of economic failure. He quickly began creating new sources of income for Harding. Benson's fame soon became widespread after a 1941 appearance before the House Ways and Means Committee, in which he advocated cutting a number of New Deal programs, including the Civilian Conservation Corps and Works Progress Administration. In 1943, he parlayed that fame and furthered his free market advocacy, creating the National Education Program, which held high school forums and worked with illustrator John Sutherland of Disney to produce cartoons promoting virtues of American capitalism. If you're wondering what some of those cartoons might sound like, well, we've got some files for you.
2: Hurry, 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 step right up, folks. Here's the answer to your problems. Dr. Utopia's sensational new discovery isn't. Now then, because we are introducing this amazing item for the first
1: time in this country, it isn't going to cost you one cent. All you have to do is sign this little scrap of paper, and you get your bottle absolutely
2: free. I hereby turn over to Ism Incorporated. Everything I have, including my freedom, and the freedom of my children, and my children's children, in return for which, said ism promises to take care of me forever. Sign right here. Uh, Mind if I read it first? Hurry up! do no, oh, no, oh, first oh, name! No, Keep your shirts on, boys. You know, including my freedom. Freedom! Well, sign away my freedom. Why, this is ridiculous. Don't be corny, brother. <laughs>
0: In 1952, Benson created the American Studies Program, today the American Studies Institute, which sought to train teachers and students in Benson's three C's of capitalism, Christianity, and constitutional government. So there is the abbreviated history. Benson left Harding in 1965, having expanded its attendance, campus, and finances. New buildings, new programs, lots of money. So what's the problem? By all accounts, Benson saved the university. Harding's growth followed Benson's own declarations of capitalist economic merit. The whole of America was on the rise. For me, the problem is that while things went up, others came down. The Iron Curtain, the Berlin Wall, and Benson's dichotic world of American capitalist virtue and a dark opposing conspiracy became an antiquated Cold War jalopy. The rhetoric today has a staleness. An ASI starts to feel like some kind of racist old relative, the kind you have familial affection for, even maybe respect for, in age, but whose view of the world seems a bit dusty. Don't get me wrong, I'm not suggesting that the ASI spouses bigotry per se, but it's gotten to the point where the black and white stance their speakers often take isn't so much classic, it's just unhelpful. Really though, the ASI is doing the very thing it was created to do. We've been talking about the ways Christians engage politics political systems, issues of advocacy. And I think that the real source of the problem with entities like ASI is only partly their polemics. It's the whole conversation they're being dropped into. Because the broad conversation in American politics stands in stark contrast to the themes of community and unity that are supposed to be central in Christian faith, we have a tendency to look past the basic assumptions that are made at the door. Things like saying the pledge or singing along to the national anthem. I want to be careful here and say that I'm not advocating sedition, that I certainly don't mean to discredit patriotism in some ways, at least not the kind that Chris Hall touched on in our interview, but I do think that we have to understand that a natural exclusivity exists in the political ethos of any nation. A simple given is taken for granted, that the ideals and desires of a specific people take precedent over others, and... To borrow from our own national lexicon, this exercises a trickle-down economic effect. The competitive, zero-sum understanding of state carries down into party and policy and can fall down onto individuals as well. All or nothing, with us or against us, becomes the mantra. I wanted to be sure to distinguish between the innate political nature of all social acts and the understanding that Christianity has, at its core, a deeply social call between that and speaking of political in terms of the systems and agencies of national government. But with that understanding, what's bizarre about all of this is that it's occurring at a school that has a generally insular posture towards the current culture. Harding thrives as a place to disuse what is popular or worldly, yet the most pervasive assumption, and this is amongst campus liberals as much as campus conservatives, is that active Christian engagement in politics as a formal involvement in a system is not only acceptable, but an act of faith. For me, that assumption is precarious. For men like David Lipscomb and James A. Harding, it was downright incompatible to their understanding of the church. I don't intend to assert either conclusion. What we're attempting to do is to loosen the assumption from the earth and let flow a new discussion on the meaning of Christian activism and Christians in society. We don't believe that removal from one type of politics, from the mechanism of the state, means the adoption of apathy or the surrender of conviction. We merely wonder if perhaps there's a better means by which to effect holy transformations in ourselves and our surrounding communities. With that said, we think ASI has the potential to be an incubator of critical and independent thought. In fact, we think it has the duty to be, first as a Christian institution, and secondly as a university organism. The arc of Christian education ought to bend towards a critical and God-centered understanding of mankind. For us, that means dismissing the battle lines, the artificial moral absolutes of policy, and embracing the betterment of one another through earnest reflection and discussion. It should, rather than being a collecting pool for the fallacies and antagonisms of an earthly system, reflect the unending upward motion that is heavenly aspiration. So, if we might bring one last ghost of Cold War past to bear, Dr. Reely, tear down these walls. Well, that's our show. I've been your host, Alan Elrod. Our show today was created and produced by myself and Zachary Crow. Special thanks to contributor Jimmy Shaw and interviewee Chris Hall. We'd like to thank you for joining us and ask you to come back next month for an old, old story.
1: I saw my bride moving out of the home. I saw my bride moving out of the home. She said she could be closer to me. I was living in D.C. I saw my bride as she moved out of the home. I saw my bride looking like a whore.